it's just such a joy, <laughs> such a joy to welcome Cameron Barnett to this venue so that we can hear um, the poems in this really wonderful book, The Drowning Boy's Guide to Water. Uh, when I first picked it up um, on Craig Street up there in Pittsburgh, um, and opened right away to um, what I call the bullets and coins poem, which in fact is at the end of this really lovely um, prayer for our nation, for all of us, um, but beginning with uh, what happened at the AMA Church in uh, July of uh, 2015. Um, such grace and truth poured out and life, and honesty, and humor, and painful beauty. And I'm not going to throw adjectives at this wonderful book because you will hear its contents um, in a moment. Um, recent work from this Pittsburgh poet who is also a language arts teacher, um, not for the faint of heart. Um, and um, he did want me to tell you that um, he, when he's not writing poems, uh, he's working on rap songs as study guides um, for these <laughs> students, um, which they find um, very cool and very weird. <laughs> <laughs> he has won um, the rising writer contest award i love that finalist also for an naacp image award and he has recent work in the florida review and rattle and the superstition review and idk i don't know uh, magazine um the digital um, online magazine um, pittsburgh what should i say i think we need to give him the warmest of welcomes this is a dream come true i can say it cameron barnett Thank you so much for that. Thank you everyone for coming out um, and for welcoming me here to it's Buckhannon, yes, Buckhannon, West Virginia. Um, I was really nervous about that. In front of you. I was like, they threw a K in Buchanan. I don't know what's going on. Um, and thank you to to Doug, uh, to Julia, to is Chad here? Chad. Uh, I got dinner with them before coming over, and I immediately felt very comfortable and very welcome here. So this is already off to a great start. Um, I'll give, um, I'll have a few things to say between some of my poems. Toward the end, we can uh, do some Q&A. Um, can everyone hear me, by the way? I'm good? Okay. I'll do a little bit of a preamble about my writing in case you're not familiar at all with me or, or what I write about. Um, as I was saying to folks at dinner, um, I, in my master's program at Pitt, um, was in this sort of tense period of writing about sort of just very general things and right at the door of writing about my own identity as a black man um, and was very hesitant to do so until a very fateful conversation with the poet uh, Yona Harvey, who was one of my mentors at Pitt, um, at a party once asked me, like, why don't you write about these things? And I stumbled through some crappy answer. <laughs> and she said, but Cameron, you, you are black. All of your poems are black poems. You don't need permission from anyone to write about who you are. And I love telling that because it's the simplest story. It's the funniest story uh, now in hindsight. 
but it was the most transformative uh, thing someone's ever done for me in my creative life. And um, it's no exaggeration to say that this book has a collection and all the individual poems in it wouldn't be possible without her. So my book is about race. It's about relationships broadly, whether they're romantic or otherwise. Um, they're about my obsession with figuring out who you are and who other people are and what we're all doing together um, under several different lenses. Um, so I'm going to begin with this first poem. Um, it's on, if anyone has a book and is following along, this is on page 14. Um, this is an ode I, I call uh, To the Octopus, which came from um, a workshop with a bunch of friends. We were like, pick an animal that you love or that's weird and just like try to parse out all the metaphors you can in it. So, <laughs> To the Octopus. I got cold cocked in the mouth once by a kid blacker than me for talking white to him outside the cafeteria. Lost four teeth to the tiled hallway, painted a stripe of red down my shirt. I'd speak of the pain, but I'm telling you a story you already know. I've seen you cling to coral so tight, you become every color all at once. Camouflage is essential. We know this, but when I watch you, I realize how you can squeeze through most things if your mouth fits just right. I'm still learning. I held half my mouth in a sandwich bag when my father picked me up at school, couldn't tally each tooth in the blood-smeared plastic, asked me, what did you do? I'm trying to be more like you now. The other day, I passed a brick wall, imagined my arms fourfold, pressed my palms to it until there was no air, but I didn't turn tan. Later, I stood on a packed bus, coiling my arms around the railing, still black. How do you shoot skin out of your body? I've seen you leave limbs behind, each a little brain distracting predators. You think of anything to stay alive. I have to mind my mouth and limbs in public. They don't grow back. My mother stayed in the operating room for hours. I was so sedated, she stayed by my side and never ate. I woke up to the dentist, teasing her about the churn in her stomach. It was louder than my drill. Mothers will starve for us. They know this. Hunger as second nature. Being eaten is what they call love, isn't it? My gums leaked well into the summer. I stopped brushing for weeks. Too many toothbrushes left in peppermint swirl. My mouth unchanged save for the cursing of that kid's name. Maybe if my blood were blue, I'd have three hearts like you. One for forgiving, one for forgetting, one for moving on. Watching you now, I know why you blacken the water and run. So that's a little bit of a heavy opener. Um, <laughs> most of my poems are kind of heavy, but I do like to read this one um, somewhere in the mix because it's at least a little bit lighter. Um, as a quick explanation to this one, in the same year, in my junior year of college, in two separate classes and two separate semesters, I was accused of plagiarism, which I didn't do. Um, and so those are separate stories you can ask me about later. But I had a friend who would just like get on my case all the time and started like calling me the plagiarist and all this stuff. And we were joking about me being a writer and how you can't do that. And I was like, maybe I'll just write a memoir of plagiarized things one day. And that joke turned into this poem, sort of. I took the title from it. Memoir of a Plagiarist, on page 57. I wrote Hamlet in a summer. Moby Dick in a year. Mastered loss and pen proofrock on a rainy day. 
My love told me stories were just masks of words, all guys, no guts. Once I conquered literature, I moved to music. Old Lang Syne and Amazing Grace, the star-spangled banner for starters. Sometimes I didn't know my next song until somebody sang it first. But I wrote it. Lyrics like a signature everyone recognized, but nobody knew was mine. My love told me songs were just earrings. When they no longer sufficed, I moved on to building. Stacked silver to the sky and called it Chrysler. Built a bridge so strong my lover named it Brooklyn. Each time I carved my name in the nooks where no one noticed. I learned so many things could be secrets, but my love told me a secret is just the valley between a truth and a lie. Soon building was easy, so I started stealing light everywhere it fell, balled it up, hurled it into the night and made Aries, Aquarius, Pegasus, Pisces, the Pleiades. I slept at my love's side, crescent clutch under the sky I'd sown. When she told me the people in her dreams were made of clay, I didn't believe her, so I became a dream, rewired neurons until her nights were a seamless cinema. But I forgot, a perfect story isn't perfect until it finds its flaw. My love forgot me. I became a thin sliver in her mind, more waning than waxing, a needle threading itself to light, unlooping every time. This next poem on 19, Stepping Into Your Mouth, um, <clears throat> is another poem that came from a weird, bizarre prompt. I have a friend group. We have just strange prompts. And the prompt was, think of your favorite poet or your favorite writer, and then imagine that you just go into their house. What do you do? <laughs> um, and being sort of the weird group we were, I decided to take it a step further. Um, so if you're familiar with the name Yusuf Komanyaka, um, he was one of my, still is one of my favorite poets. Um, and it was really influential to me when I was uh, in graduate school. So this is for him, stepping into your mouth. The front door of anything is always a trap. And so I have pried back your cellar doors, the musk of mildew dank in the air like a breath held long for something special, and I am almost certain I'm stepping into your mouth. Tell me what to do with my shoes, which tooth to hang my coat on. Epiglottis lamp chain, I yank light from your throat. I'm knocking over your furniture. I'm not apologizing. We are all guilty of something, and I am holding a fistful of your cavities. Tell me what you love and what you regret. Your sofa's short arms and long spine call out to me. I might stay a while longer. I might pilfer your sock drawer, empty your bathroom cabinets, rearrange your spice rack, any little thing to make to move your tongue. In a small vase, you keep the seeds of the Vietnam tree that stopped that bullet, the one meant to shepherd you into that darkest cellar. I put one seed in my pocket and tell myself every adventure needs an amulet. I'm sure I will find my way out of this house eventually, but not tonight. I take another seed, place it in the palm of your hand, ask you to write me a poem with it. What did you lose in the war, and who was it meant for? How do most men find death at the end of a gun barrel, but you find poetry? I am full of more questions than you can swallow. Now the tops of the windows bleed sunlight above a curtain rod horizon, and I know it is only morning. Yusuf, it's going to be warm until November. I might stay a while longer. Mm -hmm. 
Um, <clears throat> during my MFA, my uh, uncle passed away, and he, I won't say too much because it's sort of revealed in this poem, I had a really distant relationship with him, you can say. Um, and I always, people sometimes ask, like, what is your favorite poem in your book, which is a tough question. But um, having been asked it a few times now, I've, I've kind of settled on between a few, but this is often the one. So this is um, Smoke on page 58 uh, for my uncle. <clears throat> when my uncle fought fire, he didn't use a hose like his father before him. He used a straw to sip orange juice and watch the sun flicker between the curtains each morning. He fought fire all his life in the hospital, though bedridden. Dad used to tell me he has a hard time with things the rest of us do every day. I never did meet him, but I knew his good and bad days by my aunt's crow's feet or how dad's knuckles rolled under his skin when they came home from visits and played Art Blakey in the living room so loud I couldn't hear them talk. I never questioned why I couldn't see him. I never asked if I could. In a hospital, I pass often, my uncle scales a ladder and leaps through flames, taking an ax to every locked door. I don't yet know that the house is him, that something keeps rekindling the fire every time he puts it out. If one can say a house is the space just above your throat, the whole thing furnished basement to attic and burning, I can imagine my uncle leaning deep in his rocking chair, embers spread around him in a big lagoon, the pick of his axe head blunted, kissing his heel as it slides from his lap, and just outside the window, his brother and sister waving their bodies wildly to fight the fire, and that after a lifetime, it might be hard not to see them as candles. My aunt tells me he saw my graduation pictures once and gave something that looked like a smile. I learn where the thyroid is when cancer comes for his neck and threatens to finish where the flames are failing. In the end, it's not the fire that kills. Once in a while, I'll walk home and look up to see smoke coming from the next neighborhood over and I wonder if I might be watching someone's death not too far from me. It happens most often in spring, right before it rains, and the smell of what's lost falls all afternoon. I turned down giving my uncle's eulogy, because they buried him in a jar, and I didn't know the right words to make a good first impression. Tonight, I'm writing you a letter, Bruce, though it's winter now, and Dad is filling the fireplace with logs from the woodpile, even though the chimney may be too cold for the smoke to rise. This is one of my other favorite poems to read. I almost always read this at every reading I do. <laughs> um, those of you who write, um, and those of you who read, especially if you, if you write, you realize after a while that you have certain obsessions, things that you just always go to. Mine are, as you've already heard, anything about space, constellations, anything astrological, also seasons, um, and then different like toys from my childhood. They show up in my poems a lot. Um, so I brought all of that together into uh, this poem, Supernova, on page 44. The little boy I babysit loves Hot Wheels and Zoids, keeps a dusty Nerf gun under his bed. 
He prefers connects to Legos, has knobby knees and gap teeth, red brown skin like me. In his room, there's a telescope by the window where his brother's bed used to be. At night, we sit there, necks bent, eyes to the glass. He just started fifth grade, so there's a star in the galaxy for every question he asks me. Was the Big Bang real? Are aliens real? When they die, do they go to heaven too? I want to tell him about the other side of the universe where bombs go off that we never know about for millennia. I've learned to boil answers down to one word. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. Hopefully. I've learned one word is all it takes to break a kid. Only ten, but he leaves rooms when he hears black boys' names on the news. He gets quiet when guns go off in movies, so I turn the TV off at night. We don't say his brother's name. On the couch, he finds more questions. How do stars stay in the sky? I say, gravity. I want to say, I don't know how to explain. Say, but you can recognize it by how the planets fall toward them. Say, everything out there is always falling. He falls asleep with his feet against my thigh, kicks them when he's dreaming, and I want to kiss his forehead, want to calm him. He reminds me how close we are to explosion, that things always break apart from the center. He's lived it, a kid who loves space. He teaches me things too. In 50,000 years, the Little Dipper will shift, will resemble more of a bent, crushed Coke can, the hind leg of Ursa Minor collapsing into its gut. I'm afraid he will become like the stars of Draco, serpentine quirk, curve twisted into shipwreck. He deserves more than this, a solar system spinning around him, every scrap of gravity left over from the Big Bang. I want to take the boiling stone from his core, name it dignity, mold it while hot, christen it with a kiss and cool it into something the world will recognize, but I don't want to betray him. How many stars named after black kids? Or light years until the next supernova? I want him to know what room America has left for black love, black boys, black families, maybe, hopefully. One night, I dreamt Emmett Till visited Ferguson, Missouri. Nobody recognized him. Not until he laid down next to Michael Brown's body. Not until he kissed him. All right. I'm going to briefly step away from this book <laughs> to read um, a couple newer pieces, um, which I like to do every once in a while to just switch things up for myself. So um, this first one I'll read is after a poet, uh, Ricky Laurentis, um, who was recently <clears throat> um, a guest uh, lecturer at the University of Pittsburgh and read this poem, the title of which I always forget, but I, it had this cadence to it that I really loved that I adopted into to this piece, um, which I wrote in and around the time of the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court. And so, yeah, I know, I don't do light subjects here. <laughs> um, this poem is called Supreme. I dug beneath the court, and I found a blindfold, and I found its pain, too. I dug beneath the blindfold, and I found the roundness of eyes, and I found their pain, too. I dug beneath the eyes, and I found a woman, and I found her pain, too. I dug beneath the woman, and I found a wall, and I found its pain, too. I dug beneath the wall, and I found a noose, and I found its pain, too.
I dug beneath the noose, and I found a branch, and I found its pain, too. I dug beneath the branch, and I found an arrowhead, and I found its pain, too. I dug beneath the arrowhead, and I found a home, and I found its pain, too. I dug beneath the home, and I found a love that loved me back, and I found its pain, too. I brought the love with me back up to the surface, but I brought its pain, too. I held these things up in the air with my hands, but the people only stared and asked, what right did I have to dig? I'm going to give you guys a choice for my next one. Because um, I don't always know the crowds that I'm at. So one poem is a sort of angry poem about the president, and another poem is about... Um, uh, police brutality in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> um, these poems, well, I'll read, I'll read the one about Pittsburgh first, um, which is a little bit more my tradition of sort of narrative poetry that I like to write. Um, but the one you heard before and the, the one I'll read after this are sort of my attempts at um, more lyric modes of writing, which I only say just because it's not my default way of writing. So if that gives you any sense of how to read my work. Um, last year I gave myself a writer's staycation in Pittsburgh, and every day I just went to a different cafe or coffee shop and made myself sit and write, <laughs> and um, produced a bunch of poems that I've been toying with since then. And this is one of them. I was reading a bunch of books by different poets, and I was reading William Evans' book, um, Still Can't Do My Daughter's Hair, which is a really good book. So this is after one of his poems. This poem is called, My Heart Is. <clears throat> My heart is the color run. A ten and a half sized organ, double timing it on the pavement, moonlighting as a pair of Nikes slashed and segmented in the soul for flexibility. My heart is the color of description, the color of reports and of dispatch and of in the area. It's the color of criminality cast over my body like a wide net on fire. My heart is the color, why did he run? My heart is the color of the cop feared for his life. My heart is the color cops see when they see fear. My heart is the color of gun residue found on his hands mixed with an empty clip found in his pocket. The color of stop blocking the highway and get a job, a subtle shade of if he was so innocent, he wouldn't have run. My heart is the color of do what the police tell you and you won't get shot, which is to say my heart is the mud on the bottom of ten and a half size pieces of evidence in Ziploc bags. My heart is the color privilege, the color of a massive mirror hung high above the city. My heart is a set of skeletons in a closet swapping bones. My heart is the color of a ghost in a coffee shop, revising the chapters of its own making. My heart is the color of 17, the color of a city of gymnasts contorting themselves beneath a mirror just right to make a black kid's death look like his own fault. The color of justice, a color just north of red. My heart is the color of his poem and its tragedy. It's the color of tears only a mother can cry the color a mirror makes when it breaks.
Okay. This is my angry Trump poem, so just warning you. <laughs> um, this was published by IDK Magazine, uh, which Devin mentioned. It's called Stop Me. If I ever met the president, you might have to stop me from calling him a nigger. Reparations. I don't trust people who speak simply about complex things. Kid wisdom. The floor is always lava. Don't step on the cracks in sidewalks. Superstition. A ghost story is a conjuring, not a burial. Witness. The twine it takes a sycamore to still a black body. Silence. If I ever met the president, it wouldn't be a question whose button is bigger, his red and mine black lives matter. Take a knee. I sit in the back of a poetry reading and notice all the funny things next, that next do. Predictable. I stand for the anthem and I notice all the funny things people do to remind themselves they love something. Desperation. Sometimes a recipe can be too literal. Knuckle blood. Bigotry wears the same dress to every party, dances the same tired dance, lonely. I'm no good, lonely. I'm no good without a good drink and a murder of white women walking by. Ghost story. Stop me if this sounds familiar to anybody. I am not a tissue for drying your racism, thin, the property line between a blessing and a privilege. If we ever meet, I'd have to tell you that we have no better angels, privilege. All my windows and mirrors are beginning to look the same. Stop me. First place in a swim meet in a sewer. Politics. If I ever met the president, huge, hubris, hyperbole. If I ever met the president, stop me. If I ever met the president, I'd remind him about the funny thing next do between twine. Witness. If I ever met the president, I'd be no good without a ghost. Story. All the funny things bigotry does backlit with gaslighting. When I take a knee, it's for the undoing of knots around the necks of my ancestors. Rewind. If my neck ever does something funny, stop me. If I ever step on the cracks, stop me. If I am ever murdered by a white woman, stop me. If I ever introduce myself as a ghost story, stop me. If I ever call the president a nigger, silence. Told you it was angry. All right. I'm going to go back to my book um, and finish with, I think I have time for a couple more. You have all the time. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to read all of these, but that's like another 12 minutes. Okay, I'm going to read Muriatic on page 67. Um, context of this one is that I uh, was out of grad school and I was watching the Summer Olympics in Rio and Simone Manuel um, first black woman to ever win a gold medal at the Olympics. And they said that on the TV, and I was like, there's no way that's right. Like, the Olympics have been going on forever. <laughs> and it's true. And it, having already written a lot of these poems, um, which obviously from the title Center on Water, I just went down this path of, like, what is, the what is like, the literal history of, like, black people in water that needs to be brought to the fore that people don't know, know about? Um... And so that's where this poem gets its form. The other thing, if you're not up on your chemistry, muriatic is the term for um, hydrochloric acid. I didn't know that either until I wrote this. Muriatic. It begins with an epigraph from Simone Manuel herself. 
My color just comes with, with the territory. It's 1994 and I'm focused on the kickboard, toes lipping over pool's edge, anticipating the cool Anaheim water beneath, a carefully learned leaning of my body toward the swim instructor, her arms open, this white woman's embrace, the first in a long line that I'll learn to trust and fear at the same time. But today it's 2016 and Flint, Michigan is boiling the metal in its water futilely a bubbling brown, plastic bottles stacked forklift high, children stacking up in hospital weight rooms, sick with this water they were given against their will like it's 1964 in St. Augustine, Florida, and rabbis and blacks are swimming in the Monson Motor Lodge pool, while the manager cups a jug of muriatic acid, clear and colorless, dumps it into the water he skirts around, and the sheriff's men refuse to touch it while they pull bodies out against their will like it's just another day, but today it's 1936 and white men guard the pool in Pittsburgh's Highland Park, where black boys come up and ask, why can't we swim? And the white men's boots and clubs answer them for decades and decades, and today it's 2006, and the fountain in my high school arcs lukewarm water, cresting like the arch in my bent back. And just below to the side, I see a rectangle of old, old caulk, ghost of a fountain coming from the wall, and my back aches like it's 1950. And my grandfather is thirsty, so he steps into the long line, bows his head beneath the colors only sign, lips pursed to the slow trickle, though the fountain is cleaner and stronger for whites only, but he doesn't dare meddle with their water today. In 1973, when the pool at Kennywood closes for good, and some will blame integration, and some will blame maintenance problems, and some will only know the parking lot paved over or the splash of the Pittsburgh plunge as it dunks into new waters, spraying high in the air like it's 2005 in New Orleans. And Katrina's waters are either sink or swim, and the government chooses sink. And, too, and far too many whites say, why don't they just swim? And far too many blacks don't have a choice at all. And hot days go by without help, like it's 1963 and the hoses are on us, and it's 1954 and Emmett Till can't breathe, and it's every year since then that black people have known the sting of the water and kept back, kept out, kept waiting for clean waters, safe waters, until finally it's 2016 and it's a dead heat in Rio and Simone Manuel's hand hits the wall and a gasp and wide smile disbelief hits her face when a black girl wins, gold medal in the wins a gold medal in the water and wide smile black girls slip on swimsuits and little brown and black kids peek their toes over swimming pools edges knowing today for the first time the water can be our home too. I'm going to read two more. Um, let's see. So <laughs> recently I've been going to um, high schools around Pittsburgh um, and realizing that I'm getting older because I have this poem in here called Fresh Prince. <laughs> and I always want to read it because I'm like, oh, young people are going to love this. And they're like, <laughs> what is the Fresh Prince? I'm like, okay, great, cool. Um, so hopefully some, it sounds like folks here <laughs> will get this. Um, so as I said, the Smoke and Supernova are poems that <clears throat> are probably my favorites, but I think if I were to only read one poem to you tonight to understand what this book is about and what I'm about right now as an artist, this is the poem uh, that I think best explains it. Um, this poem, like the one you just heard, the reason why I'm out of breath is because, um, they're all one long sentence, which is something that my mentor, Terrence Hayes, um, 
he's attempted before, and so to emulate him, I've tried to attempt that too. So I'm going to take a big drink of water before I read this poem. <laughs> Page 72. <clears throat> Crash Prince. Now this is a story all about how. <laughs> Watching the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you realize you don't know yourself. You know your sister is Ashley, your cousin is Hillary, your brother is Jazz, your mom is Aunt Viv, the second one. Should have been the first clue. And you know this from the palms outside, outside their house that look like the palms around your block, and the palms of their hands are two-toned like your palms and your hands, and that bald, big-bellied Uncle Phil bears an uncanny resemblance to your father, and Bel Air bears an uncanny resemblance to your childhood city, but you don't know who you are, so you assume you are Will. Soft smile, smooth talk, ripe reflection of the kind of blackness you wanted, Watched the Fresh Prince growing up in Orange County while Will started off in West Philadelphia, born and raised, but you were born in Fullerton and raised in Pittsburgh and mostly around white kids, which made it easy to be the black one, easy to assume you're the black one in everything they knew and saw. Hard to know why they love Fresh Prince so much when it was really just a show about your life. Hard to figure out what any other kid could have seen in your life that you couldn't. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool in your corduroy pants crew neck sweaters, new electronics under the Christmas tree every year, braces to set your whole mouth straight. The lecture dad gave you about do-rags one time, even though it was a bandana he found in your laundry. The lecture dad gave about grills, even though you never wanted any. Wondering to yourself, who made dad the family judge? The big, clean house holding all of it together. Couldn't other kids see that you were Will? Nia Long Dayton? Class clown? Inner city steez with your no rule breaking, no back talking, articulate bookworminess, late night poetry writing stanza after stanza asking, do I really know myself? Like the page was a mirror and the reflection you began to see was Carlton. Clean cut poindexter, but darker skinned. Philip Banks protege, however resistant. College bound from birth and broken like a horse of a sun. Not a daring bone in your body, though your heart beat with the bravado of a defiant Philadelphian with the eloquence of his silver-tongued cousin, and it's so hard to tell. You don't know yourself until you watch the episode when Will and Carlton get trapped together on the side of a mountain, and you realize the mountain is a place behind your ribs, and the two of them are shades of the same black boy who has been dueling himself inside you, season after season, and you begin to question if you've had it backward this whole time. While Will goes east to west coast, you go from Cali to PA. And while Will's passing time in cool places, you are making yourself cool and passable in white spaces, pleasing your family. And it's not until you've watched a thousand hours of the show, until the phrases Fresh Prince and Model Minority become close cousins, until you see how the Banks boys didn't understand Phil's southern roots, Selma Soldier, Watts Witness, that you question if you've ever been that black that Will brings to Bel Air. Making trouble in my neighborhood. Or even eastbound Carlton Black, prepped and primed for Princeton. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared. It only clicks when you realize you were always more Carlton and that it's okay. When you realize Uncle Phil loved both boys to death and stood as a model minority for both of them. So you could reconcile that Fresh Prince is just a name for the love both boys seek from the judge. Just an inheritance every black boy seeks for himself and it only clicks when a poem about a TV show becomes a way of telling your father, I didn't always understand, and I still don't always understand.
but I'm starting to see a bit better. Okay, last poem. I always love to close with uh, the title poem of the book. Um, thank you again for coming out and for having me. Um, this has been great. I hope it's been great for you too. The Drowning Boy's Guide to Water, page 32. Remember the strength of chlorine, the indoor pool, swim class clinging to the kickboard, then jumping from the ledge into the arms of the smiling white lady, only mostly sure she would catch you. Mom calling, Cameron, Cameron, to get you to look, then said, kick, kick. Remember, there's nothing a mother won't do for one still shot of your head above the water. It's important to always practice good form. Kick your legs. Remember Tortola, the sea like melted marbles and the sun at the equator, your brown skin browning. With a stretch of snorkel between your teeth, you jumped in and chased a sea turtle for the length of the tiny island's beach. The pressure in your ears right when you thought you could catch it, mom and dad sighing when you came back to the surface. Remember your worst fear is not being able to breathe. Most people who drown are brown, and 80% of people who drown are male. Don't forget to kick your legs. Don't forget middle school musicals, all the costumes and makeup, the white boys making jokes about blackface, the laughter gurgling in their necks, no one else like you to back you up. Sometimes you will swallow water. Remember, a throat is the size of a skittle or a hole in a hoodie, and Trayvon's legs kicked hard against the night. Drowning isn't loud or splashy, it's silent autonomic, neck tilt, and terror. When you are drowning, feet become rocks. Hands push down water in vain, and the thump of blood is the only thing that can be heard. It is all supposedly painless. Always remember that. Always remember your first girlfriend's grandmother sneering at the sight of her white arms wrapped up in your hoodie, how you pretended it was painless but you couldn't help but kick your legs, or how nobody will save you anymore when you yell, I can't breathe, so just kick your legs, or every sidewalk where a white girl sees you pulls her phone up to her face and crosses the street like she's guarding something secret. Kick your legs. Remember that you have been a white girl's secret before. Kick your legs. When you are drowning, don't forget to practice good form. Float on the surface, part the water with your lips, only swallow as much as you can hold. Thank you.